0: Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network.
1: This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, Everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi wild cherry also available in zero sugar. So grab a Pepsi wild cherry and get wild. That cold case you're listening to nasty stuff, but you know what else is a crime missing? Even a moment of whatever you're doing to go on a drink run. Luckily there's drizzly the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D R I Z L Y dot com today. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years' experience booking bets and supporting customers. Bet Fred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more.
2: Hey everybody! Thank you for checking out the Performance Anxiety podcast on the Pantheon Podcast Network. My name is Mark. I am your host, and I want to thank our sponsor AKG for sending us their Podcaster Essentials kit, the Lira mic, and the headphones are amazing. If you've ever thought about starting your own podcast, that is the best way to do it. This week we take a deep dive with James Hall. We hit on a lot of topics and a lot of bands, like Mary, My Hope, the James Hall Band, the Future of Bold, the Steady Wicked, and the Ladies of. As always, we find out how he got his start in the music business, but we also find out a lot more. Like how the record labels had a hard time figuring out what to do with him and his band, placing them on tours with bands as diverse as Maria McKee, followed immediately by Rage Against the Machine. But matches like those actually helped him look at music in a different way. Now, both Hurricane Katrina and starting a family had profound effects on James and his music, and he's grateful for everything that's happened, good, bad, and otherwise, He's discovered an interesting outlet for his music and yoga classes. And while James admits to never having sold insurance in Op, Alabama, he does tell us about the work he does for Books for Africa. Check out jameshall.com for music and links to his social accounts. Follow us at Performance ANX on Twitter and Instagram. You can support the show through ko-fi.com slash performanceanxiety. Merch, like coffee mugs, are at performanceanx.threadless.com. And I hope you guys get the same feeling of hope I did with this discussion with James Hall on performance anxiety part of the Pantheon Podcast Network.
0: This is James Hall. I am a singer and performer extraordinaire and you are listening to Performance Anxiety. As <laughs> a performer, singer and performer extraordinaire. Oh, it's good. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, you mentioned a show in Pensacola. I, I actually, my brother graduated from Alabama. So, okay. my, uh, so I, I spent a lot of time in Tuscaloosa and yeah. uh, my college didn't have a football team. I went up to Rochester, New York for college for photography. So they didn't okay. really have a football team. So I kind of uh, adopted his. And so I follow the, uh, this blog and every Friday... It's it's an Alabama sports blog, but every Friday they have this post where just throw in random whatever you play your music on, make a list of the of a random ten, you know, just hit shuffle on whatever you listen to music on, and the first ten songs, just post them, just as a little fun thing. And yeah. so I started since you were coming on, I started mine not exactly randomly. I put uh, Permanent Solution on as a track number one. And I had a bunch of people commenting, saying, this guy is awesome. Love James Hall. And they wanted to know about uh, how how you like the, uh, or how the show went in in Pensacola. I I said, if you have any questions for James, let me know. Um, I'll try to work him into the show. And he said, hey, he's playing tonight in Pensacola. I'd love to hear about that show. The one they just played at the Nick." And thoughts on this current band, the Ladies of. So we'll get to that part later. But uh, okay,
0: but okay, yeah, that was um, that was great. But we can get we can get into all of this. Yeah, sure. Yeah, touch on all of this stuff. And um, and I'm comfortable talking about Katrina. Enough time has passed for me to where um, I can see that that there's you know, um, my story about Katrina is one of three hundred thousand different stories. Right and experiences of it and uh, make no assumptions that anybody that's gone through that had a similar experience. I mean, people have something similar about it, but in a lot of cases there's, you know, it's so different and varied and diverse and affected So many people, so vastly different. Oh, yeah. And and then kind of the, you know, it is a very, very, New Orleans is a very, very special place. The Gulf South is a very, very special place but you know there are some realities about living there and you know you could you could be a high energy survive anything kind of person but when you see the the storm swell uh and the waves get up that high it's it certainly is uh it emphasizes nature's indifference and and strength
2: yeah absolutely and uh, definitely get to that point before we get too far into things i do want to say thank you again for for coming on i know this as we were just talking about this isn't an ideal time to do to to be doing things but i do want to thank you. some
0: respects it may be
2: well maybe yeah maybe maybe talking about it will uh open things up maybe 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 nice to talk about it you know
0: yeah i um i'm i'm feeling uh good about where i am And, um, it was, uh, an, an interesting time, but it would probably be one of the more definitive times of, uh, transition for me. And, um, and, and especially for, for how I, how I, I you know, philosophical change, you know, for me.
2: Well, before we go too deep into that, I would, the way I usually like to get everything rolling is to learn more about your history a little bit how you got into music in the first place you know what was going on in the house when you grew up I mean was there a lot of music in the house I I read that uh your dad was a NASA engineer
0: yeah yeah
2: and uh let's see your mom was a nurse which is awesome My, my daughter is studying to become a nurse so
0: yeah this um no those are those are you know my mother and father were my dad was Close to 30, and my mom was in nursing school in her early 20s uh, when they met at a party in Houston. My dad was from uh, Oklahoma and Texas, uh pretty rural upbringing, um, in the uh, Lone Star oil tenements and, and uh, build-outs throughout Oklahoma and the state of Texas. Okay. Um, uh, Fox, Oklahoma is, I think, where he would— And then Petrolia was the name of his high school.
2: (laughs) Oh, wow.
0: (laughs) But um, he uh, went into engineering and uh, got a master's in engineering at uh, OU and then uh, worked for a while out in California, but I believe returned to Houston where there was, you know, certainly a lot of jobs around that time, both in engineering, petroleum engineering, but he went and worked for NASA as a uh, independent contractor with Martin Marietta. Oh, okay. And um, and then with General Electric. And then um, my mom was in nursing school. She had gone to school at Columbia, um, but I don't know what she was doing in Houston.
3: <laughs> I don't know.
0: But um, but anyway, they hit it off, and uh, before too long, they were having me.
3: Yeah.
0: And uh, so they. got married but my dad was you know late 20s he was like 29 or 30 when they got married and my mom was about 23 and uh we grew up in a suburb of houston and um we were there for about eight years or so i don't really remember too much in the way of music around that time other than elton john was pretty big in the uh mid-70s and uh I mean, I think Casey and the Sunshine Band was big down there when I was down there. Um, uh, I know that Eric Clapton had a hit with I Shot the Sheriff, and uh, um, it was the 70s in suburban USA in the uh, Clear Lake City area. And then um, after a few layoffs and a a little bit of uh, job insecurity, my dad interviewed with uh, a small hospital management corporation in Nashville. And um, it was considering even going and working for the oil companies in Saudi Arabia. Wow, so we were, there was something that was on the table. But he really liked um, this company in Nashville, Tennessee. And so we moved up to Tennessee. We were in apartments for about nine months.
2: Okay. And
0: uh, it was a bit of a shock as well, but moved into Southeast Nashville, and my mother and father are still there to this day.
2: Probably less of a shock than Saudi Arabia would have been, though.
0: Um, I did have a friend, in fact, uh, the guy who played for years with me, Sterling Roig, whose dad did, in fact, go to Saudi Arabia. Oh, wow. And he was there um, a good bit, you know, and it was, that's, you know, kind of odd living because you're, you know, like in a lot of cultures where it's kind of way outside the American consciousness, there's a lot of compounds and stuff. And so you're living almost like a army base kind of mentality.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I had a friend of mine whose dad was some uh, diplomat and they moved, they were in Egypt and Haiti and he he said the same thing. It's very strange. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's, it's strange. And it, and, I mean, it could have influenced me somewhat. I, um, But I do believe that being in Nashville gave me a bit more exposure to music. Because I remember this kid in... Uh, I think it was in second grade when I got to Nashville. And then, of course, I remember other songs. Rubber Band Man by The Spinners. and Oh,
3: yeah.
0: Uh, Working My Way Back to You. They had a big record that year. And the OJs and... Uh, But I had a friend that was drawing these kind of almost like perverse looking like clowns on the pages of his notebook. And I remember asking him about that. and He's like, it's it's Kiss. I said, it's Kiss. He says, it's it's a rock group. I said, oh, it's a rock group. And he was uh, among the first kids that played records for me that I really, really liked. Kiss for me, I didn't really connect with it because to me it just didn't sound very musical. It just sounded like a lot of explosions and stuff. (laughs) So, uh,
3: oh yeah, uh, you know, it
0: it kind of had this kind of Muppet kind of thing to it, and that may have been kind of like its appeal. But um, but to me, it didn't really invite me in the same way that. Like uh, Diamond Dogs did,
3: oh and, yeah, you
0: know, and and, and, and and you know, to be truthful, I didn't really get Diamond Dogs, but I heard it, and I loved Rebel Rebel, and yeah. um, you know, I didn't really get much of the rest of the record, you know, but I never forgot it. And in the death, as the last corpses lay rotting on the slimy thoroughfare, you know, um, all of that dramatic post-ecliptic dystopian rock opera was pretty powerful to me
2: a little more powerful um, than detroit rock city
0: um and and look don't get me wrong detroit rock city was cool too and and yet to me it seemed like it was you know detroit rock city was harder for me to sink my teeth into and it seemed kind of oblique and you know, this guy's going to laugh because he knows he's going to die. I mean, yes. what? Yeah. You know, I'm nine. You know, I'm just yeah. kind of getting my mind around this <laughs> this death thing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so uh, so it was a while before I, you know, I I saw the merit of a good Kiss song. And uh, but yet, you know, Kiss was just not something that connected with me right away. Um, but, uh, but the Diamond Dogs album did. So and I remember, um, coming home after, you know, staying at this kid's house and, and hearing him play the drums and get a kit and, uh, but he was good, good player. And this is, these are, I mean, these are kids, not yet 10. Oh, wow. You know, okay. that we're doing this. Um, but I remember coming home and, and starting to put on like, the Beatles records, and I remember c- talking to Tom, this kid, about putting the Beatles stuff on, and I expected that he would be pretty, like, kind of, you know, smirk. He would have smirk about it because it was definitely not very, very current stuff. Right. But he actually really had a lot of good things to say about it. He's like, "Oh, that's good record. Yeah, this is stuff." He was already very familiar with the Beatles, and so I was kind of impressed by that and i'm kind of impressed that my mom and dad had everything up through rubber soul oh you know? wow, okay and then they did have one psychedelic record called disraeli gears oh
2: which, yes which
0: is the cream album and there's some you know Mama's and the papas and crosby stills nash and young and uh jefferson they playing surrealistic pillow they had that one but um but I think that their record buying ended once they had me. and then, cause, Because once they had me, within one year or two, they had, you know, within two years, they had three kids. And, and uh, they were swearing this, like, you're going to be out of diapers by the time your sister comes along. <laughs> well, really, I'm only two. But uh, it's intense. Uh, but no, when we, um, you know, when I was listening to this stuff, I knew my mom had a guitar. And I knew it sounded cool when I went into... Her room and like plucked the E string really hard, it almost sounded like distortion <laughs> and um uh and it sounded powerful, yeah, but I still didn't really even know what electric guitar did, but I started taking guitar lessons and invariably i I probably had you know attention deficit disorder, you know, I think that my mother and father wisely figured that perhaps guitar wasn't a great route for me <laughs> or great idea for me. Um, so, uh, those those lessons ended after not too long and I got older and I was grounded for a lot of the years um, <laughs> and uh, among that, because my grades were that great, uh, grounded from the guitar. So, I begged uh, to let them, to allow me to just keep the guitar in my room, but I wouldn't play it. And um, <laughs> after after the lights were out, I would take the guitar out and play it. And because they were, you know, resistant to me playing guitar, I learned how to play guitar in the dark, which means I don't have to follow my hands. And I had a tactile sense about what I'm doing, which enabled me to sing more readily and more easily where it came to my connection to hearing music and playing music.
2: Oh, that's fascinating.
0: So it made me a bit more of a lead singer as a result of that because I didn't have to follow my hands.
2: Were you interested in singing the entire time as well as guitar?
0: No, I thought I could get by with just playing guitar, but apparently that wasn't going to work for me. <laughs> uh, thought I'd be good enough at guitar, but I wasn't very fast.
3: So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that sounds speed. And kind of to know where
0: you stand, you know, in, in nineteen seventy nine in Nashville, Tennessee, if you know you're really slow as a guitarist, you know, it may be hard to find a place. because uh, <laughs> yeah. there were kids in middle school that were just, just fretboard burners. They were shredders. Oh my god. And uh, and I knew kind of where I stood there. But thankfully I got into songs and um and I was starting to kind of get into competition Nashville as well had a um under the tutelage of the Terranova family had a great orchestra and um and so when you when um, if you were in a certain number of public schools, you were learning violin, you were learning cello, you were learning bass wow. upright bass viola, and I was in the violin, and so I learned violin across fifth sixth seventh and eighth grade
3: oh
2: wow
0: and that was helpful too as well but it was it was always ears versus the eyes and my eye my sight reading was never as as strong as my um my ears okay and uh and so I was inclined to follow that and I know that my uh instructor Caroline Terranova is still around but you know She would, you know, it's like, oh, boy, you got rusty over the summer, you know. uh, (laughs) But she was a good teacher. And, and, you know, and and my first exposure to the road was through her, you know, getting us out of school, going over to play Wharton Elementary, getting us out of school, getting, you know, all the— Orchestra members do permission slips, renting a bus, renting a coach, and heading down to Chattanooga. Like, I mean, real wow. stuff. Getting chaperones to sign on. There's all sorts of stuff.
1: Man. Oh, wow.
0: Yeah, so we got a chance to to have that experience, which was quite cool.
2: So you started and playing um, in front of audiences fairly early then?
0: Fairly early, yeah. And that was, that was very cool to me. That was very... A uh, very unique experience, and and really not very rock and roll in a right. way, but but I I think that it was it was uh, it did help form some of what I understand about pulling off a show, making a show happen, you know, pulling it together. Okay, I um have uh, a lot of respect for families that devote themselves to music education. Oh yeah, really do.
2: I I do too. Have we've. I kind of taught myself how to play guitar, but I never really learned how to. I, I learned a little bit of a little bit of how to read music early on, but quickly lost it. And I always wished that it was something I had I had been able to stick with. You know, much like you said, it wasn't all that important to my parents. And uh, all my kids, we we got them in. they in the school band. They've been playing for years. They're all in in high school marching band, and they can all read music and it's, I I think it's incredibly important in all aspects of your life. I think it helps in so many ways.
0: Yeah. I, um, I mean, my son played in marching band for all four years of high school and he will, you know, he will vouch for it and say it kept him out of trouble.
2: Yeah. I can say the same thing with my kids. I know it's keeping my son out of trouble. My daughters, I wasn't too worried about my son, you know, uh, yeah. He's a little bit too much like me, I think.
0: Well, with um, with that going in, I, th- I probably had, and this is kind of interesting too as well because I've reconnected with them. Uh, so I was up through, you know, middle school and uh, in the orchestra, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. After leaving eighth grade, I was tested for private schools, and uh, this particular test had. It concluded that I would be a better match for a a smaller private school. Okay. And um, so I showed up at private school with longish hair, painter pants, and desert boots <laughs> in the year of boat shoes and plaid. <laughs> and um, and so I was kind of an easy target and uh, kind of labeled a freak and a druggie or whatever. And um, and, and one particular guy uh, was, um, you know, say, you know, saying that, uttering that under his breath or whatever, until he heard from a friend that said that I could play guitar well, and then he, and then he started, you know, putting himself on my radar and saying, "Hey, man, you know, do you like the Who?" I said, "I love the Who." You know, do you like Jimi Hendrix? I love Jimi. Hendrix. Do you like, you know? Queen. I was like Queen. She's like just checking. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, you know, he uh, he played drums, and he his mom was you know open to us playing at her house, and so we'd go over to there to his mom's house and uh, play to our hearts' content on Saturdays. Nice. And um, initially, it was just it was we had one other guy that was coming over to as well, a guy named Chris with a K. Okay. And, uh, but he wasn't at school very long, and I think he transferred out elsewhere the following year. Um, but like, Pat and I were regularly jamming together, you know, for the high school years.
2: Oh, nice. And
0: it was just, it was, a, I think that we were the most successful drums and guitar band in Nashville, Tennessee at that time. There weren't many of those around, you know, <laughs> drums and guitar, but we were the, among the most successful. And it was kind of funny. At one point, a um, you know, I think we put in the Trader Post, which was kind of the local rag there in 1980. Looking, uh, or either that, or we saw somebody that was like kind of open to jamming. And so this like 23 year old came in and jammed with us on bass. Oh wow! And we were sounded so good. <laughs> and uh, and like you know, we're just like thinking, where do we play? Where can we play? You know, and, and Pat, who's sixteen, and I, who'm fifteen, not even able to drive yet, are like are really gung ho about playing. Yeah, and um, and it's funny because like um, a lot of you know we loved you really got me. We loved you know Captain America by uh, the Kinks. We loved uh, paranoia, self destroyer. I mean, just all of those songs were so powerful and compelling for that time to us and informative, really, too, as well. I mean, I, those were among the first covers I was learning. And Pat turned me on to The Clash. This guy who played drums turned me out of The Clash. And the other thing he did, it, it, The Clash, Jeff Beck, some of the Rod Stewart stuff that was kind of more rollicking. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, uh, it just it kind of opened up my world a lot. And, um, he just had a great record collection. And, um, I remember, uh, you know, and I told him this, I was able to talk to him. I said, you know, you gave me a badly needed social pass when I was a pretty odd fit for private schools. You know, and, uh, even, I remember even getting into his car, he had a, he called it the Lost Horizon, but he had a Dodge Horizon, which is kind of a small
2: Dodge. Oh, yep.
0: <laughs> and uh, those. he had AM. He had AM radio in it, but um, he was listening to Queen and Bowie's "Under Pressure," and uh, and he was commenting. He's like, "Man, they sound good together," you know. And I know that he liked Bowie, but he didn't. He wasn't certain what to do with Queen. Right. I mean, and he's he's a very even to this day, is a very discerning listener. Like he just, if he hears sounds like bullshit, he's got a real good bullshit. <laughs> you know, he just shuts it down. And uh, the, um, and it was funny to kind of to reach out to him and reconnect with him over the last couple of months. Um, oh, nice. You know, I don't know if there were many people that I went to high school with that I would do that with, but this guy in particular was great.
2: Oh, that's um, fantastic.
0: You know, he was turning me on to the, the Stevie Ray Vaughan singles, the uh, the gym, the the stuff that he worked on with Bowie, and um, I'm just trying to think of all of his, he was such a nerd and so aware of what was happening in music, yeah. and um, and I had, you know, some awareness of music, but like not that deep, but um, he was like, you know, it's like, I forget what he was saying, he's like, Man, I said, Well, what about Rush? You know, and he's like, I don't got much use for him. Oh, wow. He says, But uh, but working man, we could do working man if you want. <laughs> so he was all game about playing working <laughs> man, he liked that for some reason. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and it's kind of funny because I was there was some early formative lead playing on me that that solo from working man that long solo and then right. kind of the wrapping up of the, dow, 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 like the, uh, the bending strings, almost the pedal steel style bending strings at the end of that song.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It
0: influenced me. And I'm still into that now. I'm still into pedal steel style bends and country playing and stuff now at this point.
2: So he liked the, yeah. uh, the John Rutsey version of rush. Not the new. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I, for my own part, you know, my favorite Rush records were probably Permanent Waves. I love that. Yeah. Um, I think I liked 2112 uh, or or uh, Exit Stage Left. I think I really got into
2: that. Oh, that's a great one. Yeah.
0: And then uh, I dug Signals and uh, I dug, which was their keyboard album. And um, that's what everybody called it. Yeah. Uh, and then um, Moving Pictures, too, as well. And I think I got into all of it eventually, you know, yeah. Fly By Night and
3: Caress oh, yeah, of yeah.
0: caressive Steel and all of that sort of stuff, but but the stuff, I mean, there was some pop writing going on in Signals that I connected with. There was some pop writing going on in the arrangements on uh, on Moving Pictures, too, as well. It was happening on Permanent Waves, too, as well, but it was really happening by the time they got to moving pictures and, oh, and they, I... they kind of, they hit it out of the park with America. And then a lot of my friends that were into that kind of went into like Spyrogyra Gyra and return to forever and Al and that oh. stuff. I was just like, it was way over my head. Yeah. That's and, um, different, just, just technically. And, and like for me to even consider it in terms of songs. So thankfully, Where I fell off there, there were records uh, coming out, Regatta de Blanc and Zenyatta de Mandata by the police. And, and, uh, you know, U2's records were starting to come out and starting to come online to grab my ears and kind of help me get through that time period where, you know, I wasn't going to be going to jazz school for guitar it didn't mean that i didn't couldn't appreciate it in some respect but like i mean uh trying to think like what what would be the the context you know i was just i was trying to learn bryan adams you know struggling with bryan adams songs you know funk music you're going to try and play me some you know some sort of like funk influenced you know Chick korea it's like <laughs> I does not even know what to do with it, right. you know. <laughs> uh So when, you know, and invariably when Reckoning came out by R.E.M., I got that, and then Fables of the Reconstruction, and um, uh, all of those kind of records of the Driver 8 on it, and Feeling Gravity's Pull, and the College Rock, I guess, kind of grabbed me too as well. Yeah. Uh, right, At the yeah. same time, and it was true that I did have some of the friends that, you know, went To Spirogyra and return to forever, and and uh, a lot kind of more of the progressive prog rock kind of stuff, Brain Salad Surgery, and all that sort of stuff. Some of those people were the same ones who were turning me on to Candy O by the Cars. You know, when we were in elementary school, they were turning me on to Jimi Hendrix's output in
2: elementary school. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors.
0: Hearing Jimi Hendrix on a child's record player was a very, very unique experience because it was I mean, Jimi Hendrix made records that absolutely roared at you. Yes. I mean, it was full on Stratocaster, flying the assault with you know, his singing, which wasn't always pitch perfect, but certainly intense and heartfelt. And I don't, I think it was meant for good stereos, but we didn't really have good stereos there. We just had kids' record players, but I remember listening to it on them and thinking, like, this sounds a certain way, and this is cool stuff. Yeah. You know, I don't know how it's being done. There was no, like, get your guitar out. Okay, now learn this. Yeah. No idea <laughs> about how it was done. Exactly. But it was kind of cool, and, and, you know, we heard other stuff, too. We heard, in, in grade school, we heard other left-of-the-dial stuff, like... Uh, flying lizards money that's what i want uh we heard the vapors with a, a song called turning japanese yep so we heard that sort of stuff and that was compelling too as well and then of course the talking heads take me to the river and those other albums were coming out I'm starting to take starting to connect with a wider audience.
2: So you had a really right. wide range of music that you listened to growing up.
0: Yes, I did. And it was, it was really, really lucky in a lot of ways because a lot of these bands that I'm referring to the cars among them and uh, the talking heads and REM and U2, they all enjoyed some degree of like, uh, of getting an audience, a loyal, a loyal fan base. And it's oh, yeah. really cool. And, um, you know, and of course, you know, if you're exposed to that sort of stuff, you can't have that stuff without having Led Zeppelin and other classics in that mix. Who else? The Who, Cheap Trick. Floyd. Um, yeah. Pink Floyd eventually, too, as well. Pink Floyd was certainly on the radio a lot.
3: Yeah.
0: Um, I didn't really get them until I was in my late teens, and a friend of mine just encouraged me to sit down and listen to the entirety of the Dark Side of the Moon while we watch the snow screen channel on a TV. (laughs) And um and I think it was a really, really wise call, but I mean he just said, let's just put the snow screen on. And uh and so we turned the volume down and then listened to that record. And it allowed me to focus on the record more differently. And it was kind of the first time that I heard all of these classic songs which i was already familiar with by the way as a artistic statement
2: that was about the time i got into my, my late teens when i started really liking floyd myself and it was in the early 90s for me so it was a similar yeah. experience where i i knew all these songs i don't know for it just didn't click with me until then
0: yeah i mean i had kind of you know written them off as kind of hippy dippy yeah. Like, not really, uh, like, too mellow for the psychedelia that I was influenced, that I was interested yes, in.
2: that's right? exactly it.
0: And uh, and then I realized that they were doing a different form of psychedelia, you know, in their own kind of way, you know, or a, a different kind of uh, esoteric expression. Um, and and that's, that, that said, you know, Piper the, Day, the Gates of Dawn and Saucerful Secrets are different kinds of things there. But, you know, by the time they got their audience in America, they were doing a 70s version of Psychedelia that would, had very, very little to do with 1967, Summer of Love and, you know, Carnaby true. Street. Very and, uh, true. All of the kind of swinging London stuff, right? And then, uh, and by that point that I had written them off as kinda of hippy dippy, I was into, you know, some of the Paisley Underground stuff. I was into psychedelic furs. I was into the cure. I was into Echo and the Bunnymen. So the waves of post punk music that was coming out and, and connecting with listeners in the States was part of what I was getting into by that point too.
2: And were you still in Nashville around this time or?
0: Um so I um I had a friend from New Jersey who sent me a mixtape of The Cure, The Smiths. Um, I don't think she had any Echo and the Bunnymen on it, but um, XTC Uh and other items that I might not have happened on being in Nashville. And I remember really connecting with The Smiths and, and thinking that that and I, and I guess she had the singles for the stuff you know this charming man and Suffer Little Children and and all of this stuff and I remember thinking to myself this is really really compelling guitar music and, and you know and I kind of knew this was kind of gay you know and uh, I wasn't necessarily worried about automatically becoming gay because I listened to the Smiths but <laughs> I remember kind of like like listening to Morrissey and noting how hard it must be to be Morrissey. And, uh, and yet, you know, he's a poet and he's getting the stuff out there and it is kind of funny too, as well. Some of the music, some of the lyrics are, are funny. Yeah. And the guitar work was just exquisite. And and then, and then look, look, the guitar work and the bass work and the drums work were on that stuff was without question, exquisite, exquisite material. The, uh, it took a while before I realized that Johnny Marr was using a capo. And, um, but it was really, really helpful to get into that music because it was uh, the first time I was actually able to kind of go like, oh, he's using a capo. And it wasn't like a gimmick or a trick or anything like that. Yeah. It was just a way. It was, it, it was creating a new way to hear guitar music so you know bar chords there's bar chords and then there's open chords and then hearing all of these songs rendered on the alternate tunings and rendered with a capo gave me a sense about hearing chord shapes and so you know when i was getting to be 19 and 20 i was able to hear chord shapes so let's see like, how do you know it's C? Well, I just, I hear the shape. I hear the succession of strings in this order. I can tell you that the shape he's playing is a C. Right. It may it may be capoed somewhere, but it's a C shape. And so I was able to kind of hear that stuff. Um, probably not great with naming bar chords too well, but I was actually able to kind of give you, give, my, give myself some sort of reference point when hearing the song and how it, how to recreate it or how to learn it or how to listen to it and so okay. that was also an influence on my playing and um, you know and I'm still learning uh, covers today you know.
2: We've done so, some really awesome ones like honestly uh, I, I, one of the ones that I, that I love that seems to escape a few people is Psycho Killer. Yeah. I love your version of Psycho Killer that is so great. Can't seem to face up to the
0: facts. Tense and nervous, can't relax. Can't sleep, beds on fire. Don't touch me, I'm a real life wire. Psycho killer, guess say pa pa Run, run, run. Run, run away. Thank you. Somebody has recommended that we do Psycho Killer again. And uh, I didn't mention that I had a lot of familiarity with it. <laughs> and one of the guys that has a cover band that he plays in is just like, uh, man, I've done, you know, I've done, I've done Psycho Killer, you know, <laughs> in about every rendering that you can possibly do it. You know, <laughs> and uh, I'm not excited about it. you right. know. So, So it was kind of they put the kibosh on it. You know, I was well I was open I was willing to do it but um you know this particular group uh the ladies of does uh girls just want to have fun and they do awesome. a Katy Perry song.
3: Oh, that's awesome. And
0: um and we're just kind of like into good songs. Um uh, we don't do many covers because we have a lot of original content but almost anything is in fact you know, without even uh, without even advancing the guys on it, uh, we played uh, Boogie Oogie Oogie by A Taste of Honey in Pensacola. On, um, and so, like, you know, and so, and of course, I'm known for shouting out the chords while we're doing the song. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh I'd like you to think one day I'd get good at it. Um, <laughs> But um, but we did do a Boogie Yogi Yogi by Taste of Honey, which is a really really compelling song. I mean, lyrically it's you know pretty basic, and yeah. um, but but when you when I think about all the bass work and the guitar work that's going into that song, and that this that this band was fronted by two women, I mean, it's just it couldn't be any better. Yeah, and you know, and I was a kid when that song was working its way up the the top 10 charts. And the other thing I kind of like about it is that, you know, doing a song like Boogie Oogie Oogie, having a lightweight lyric delivered by, you know, a a raspy voice like, you know, the one you're hearing right now, carries a certain kind of, kind of weight to it, you know. Yeah, if you think you're to coo who oh, the book, yeah. You know. Yeah. And uh you know, it can be somehow more powerful. <laughs> <You know? laughs>
3: If you're feeling you're too
0: cool a boy, oh boy, if I got news for you, so, um, wow. so everybody here tonight must boogie. Yeah, <laughs> you are no exception to the rule. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not doing. <laughs> for a couple of days. But um but no yet the certain songs that if you can get the the contrast of either a lightweight lyric delivered by a heavy heavier sound and voice it can be really compelling. Or then other times a really, really heavy, weighty lyric sung by a very, very upper register girl voice or a Perry Farrell kind of voice can be just as compelling
2: oh yeah there's that contrast
0: it's that contrast but you know and then on uh the, earlier on that day i was learning uh amy winehouse's uh tears dry on my own and uh that one is is ain't no mountain high enough kind of re- reframed rethought with amy's lyrics okay on it but i've loved that progression just forever and ever and it's and church and gospel music is a big part of what still motivates me and still sounds really cool to me
2: i can hear it in the steady wicked i definitely hear that influence in that but before we get into that i did you you did a really faithful cover of needle in the camel's eye with mary my hope How did how did you meet everybody that ended up becoming Mary? My hope and how did you guys get started playing together?
0: Um, well, so I wasn't among the seventeen or eighteen year olds, which was very good at planning, and <laughs> so uh, I was um, accepted into Western Kentucky University uh, with in-state to tu- an in-state tuition break because I had done well on the ACT. And when I got into uh, Washington, Kentucky University, and Omandrad um, drove me up, and you know was loading the amplifier into the room, and and you know all of the needed items and books and all that sort of stuff. Gosh, how did I even? How did I even do that? <laughs> um, uh, the RA came and met me, and uh, he says, "Hi, James. You know you like do you like to be called James. Says, yeah, I could be called James." And he says, "Okay, well, James, um, you know, I'm Steve. I'm your RA, and um, and you know, i will be just down here to making sure everything's going okay. I know that sometimes it's a big adjustment, you know, being away from home for the first time, and if you get lonely, you know, my door's down here. I live alone, um, and uh, you know, and then also I've got a you know good stereo and a bunch of good records. And I said, okay, cool." And when REM's record, Life's Rich Pageant, came out, I think that was it, with Begin the Begin on it. It's like R. E. M. put a record out and then it has a guitar solo on it. You know? <laughs> and um and so we went you know, I'd go down to his room and I'd listen to that stuff. I'd go down to his room and listen to uh, the replacements records. I heard Marlena on the wall by um Suzanne Vega. I heard Tommy Keene, I heard wow. Uh, ben Vaughn combo, I just heard so many things down in his room that I wouldn't have heard any other way, Wow! just no other way. And Steve Gorman graduated and went to Atlanta six months ahead of me and called me up and let me know that, that look, you know, Mary, there's, we have a group that we're calling Mary My Hope, named after this prayer book. And uh, you should come down and, and try it out. And so that spring, I came down and, and tried out and joined that band. So Steve Gorman of Black Crow's Fame is Mary and My Hope's original original drummer. And um, so I, um, uh, I was two semesters at Western Kentucky University, so I have, I think, a freshman degree under my belt, I think' got. Okay. Graduated a freshman. <laughs> um, I don't know if they do that now, but but um, I, I you know, we moved into a house that was four hundred and fifty dollars a month in uh, little five points, and I was able to uh, start playing music live and start doing shows around the Atlanta, Little Water Tavern area, right? Dugout place called the Dugout, call the dugout um, and then the White Dot. And Mary and My Hope, after about a year of playing, we started ascending into talks with Silvertone Records. We were doing demos kind of around. Our first yeah. demo was at Curtis Mayfield's studio.
3: Oh, wow.
0: And then our second one was at uh, Bobby Brown Studios, which I don't even know what soundscape, I don't even know what that was called, maybe soundscape. And then we went to Nashville and did more demos up in Nashville. Okay. And on the strength of those demos, ANR for Silvertone Records, which was a division of Jive RCA, um, this guy, Michael Tedesco, heard it and passed it along to his friend, Andrew, in Britain. And he says, you know, there's a band that's coming out uh, that I think you, should, you might be interested in. He's like, well, what was their name? He's like, well, they're called Mary and My Hope. He's like, where are they from? It's like, well, they're from Atlanta, Georgia. And he's just like, I don't think I'm interested. And um, he says, I'm just not really interested in anything that's coming out of that area there. And, and then, you know, to his credit, at that time, you know, a lot of the the Atlanta scene stuff was very, very much in the Mitch Easter and uh, R.E.M. and um, B-52s and trying to think of the other bands that really kind of sounded like that, like the Connells kind of like this jangly 60s pop kind of idiom. You're looking at a guy that followed like REM and was influenced by REM and was still influenced by REM. But there's so many bands that were doing their own junior version of that that we weren't really interested in doing that. Now, mind you, it still wasn't that easy for us to, to make an original statement right out of the gate you know because you know we're taking all of this stuff that we really dig in we're taking the doors in we're taking Pink Floyd Bauhaus Roxy music um uh, the cure uh Jesus and Mary Jane yes Swans like I mean we're starting to get kind of heavy with the stuff and yet we're still not really certain like okay well how do we get 10 songs that are cohesive enough to put a record out well, you know when we got signed, we worked with Hugh Jones, who was a great producer, especially at roping in the four writers and or or creatives into a single singular vision and We really needed that and so you know we we went to Britain in nineteen eighty eight and recorded there in nineteen eighty nine we um you know mixed and came home and uh and kind of waited until the record was coming out. But it, we made, I think we were sent a dat of the record, or maybe a cassette, it was cassette. We sent a cassette of the record through FedEx. And I remember hearing it, and uh, or maybe not even hearing it yet, but going over and, and saying, hey, look, I want to I wanna take acid and hear this. And so um, I took acid and listened to the record and then uh, brought it over to Sven and Clint and and for them to hear it and after kind of sitting me kind of what, beside me wigging out listening to it then they wanted to go score it so they went over and scored more acid and then and ended up, up <laughs> where the whole band at 2 a.m is dosed and listening to this record <laughs> and uh, and we were really, really happy with how it came out.
2: It's got and, a huge variety of styles, like you'd mentioned. I mean, it, Wild Man, Child Man sounds nothing like Death of Me, which sounds nothing you know. like It's About Time, which I think might be my favorite track on that album.
0: Yeah, yeah. Was, it's just cool stuff.
2: Was, was everybody contributing to the songwriting, or was it just one or two main songwriters?
0: Um, that was, I mean, chiefly it was Clint, Sven, and myself. Okay. And... You know, and I was jealous of Clint's maturity as a songwriter. I was deeply jealous about that. You know, he was so good, so young, and uh, could just throw the rules out. And um, But Sven was the kind of guy that could, could kind of, like, help rein Clint into a musical language. Okay. So Clint would take some of the risks. Sven would kind of help make it musical. Uh, Sven... Would also help with stuff that I was working on, and um, and perhaps even make it more harmonic or more musical too as well. And then Steve Linamom had great ideas of his own too as well. He wrote the lyrics to "I'm Not Alone," or at least partnered with me on the lyrics to "I'm Not Alone," and and so he was involved as well. We all had a, a shared voice in that in that group, and. Uh, and, but I just, I remember being so jealous of Clint his ability to <laughs> kind of write boldly and, uh, and and just kind of do like a first draft and it was basically done. Oh, wow. And, uh, and then it's like, kind of jealous. It's like, well, I'm a better guitar player than you. Why are you able to do this? <laughs> <laughs> but I, um, you know, I also know that he grew up with a more well, no, we all grew up with difficult family dynamics, all of us, but, um, you know, I don't, I think that he, there was more responsibility on his shoulders as a young, young man that kind of, uh, necessitated him being decisive and, uh, if not assertive about things.
2: Okay. So, um, you guys had a really good following from what I understand in Atlanta, and then you kind of went to New Orleans was there a reason behind the move so
0: um I um you know I have to take responsibility for my part in that you know I was frustrated with the band I was frustrated with the band dynamic okay um you know I was continuously ambitious and pushing and wanting the band to change and become something different or and um I was um you know, I was I was struggling for power in the group, and um, I, um, I I was afraid that we were never going to get to our second record because it was it was so it had gotten a bit toxic. Ah, uh, okay. And um, I told them I was thinking about quitting the band, and I was going to Nashville, and so I went to Nashville. And I had met my, my then wife by that time, and, uh, and I felt that I was at a point, I was at a dead end in the band, um, wanting to do other stuff, wanting to branch out and get into other things. And, um, and I, you know, when I, was, I even kind of lost connection with why I was doing music, which oh, is wow. for the joy of playing. Yeah. And um, and not because it's an income or a revenue source or anything like
3: that. Right.
0: So I went to you know Nashville, got a haircut, and started you know working at a restaurant, saving up my money. And I felt that if I was going to have a good chance of getting something going in music, that I was going to need to be anonymous for a while.
2: Okay. So and you just, um,
0: you just, Mary, my hope didn't really have much of a foothold in New
2: Orleans, and so you just kind of stopped music for a little while yeah. before before moving to New Orleans. Yeah, wow. I do. I did,
0: and uh, and I ate a bunch of acid too, as well. That was probably also not really advisable either. <laughs> but um, but it did kind of give me a chance to kind of see how I was changing. And um and some of the aspects of my character that I didn't like that I'd have to kind of deal with and okay. um and so I moved down to New Orleans and um uh, Laurel moved down about a year later I got a job working in the hotels got my first rehearsal space got my first couple of gigs and started playing out started just playing out acoustically. And eventually got a drummer there too, as well. I've always been comfortable with guitar and drums. And this guy, Lynn, that I'd known from Atlanta, joined me down in New Orleans and he started playing alongside me. And uh, one of the shows that we did at an old venue called RC Bridge Lounge, uh, the week after, one of the weekdays after, I was approached by Grant Curry in, the rehearsal space who says, you know, look, there's nothing wrong with what I saw y'all do last Friday night. But if you're thinking about adding a bass, I'd certainly like to be considered.
2: Oh, that's awesome. And
0: so he and I are still friends to this day. It also must be noted that the drummer that we had at that point in time, the first night that Grant and the drummer in the room, they started talking about you know, stuff that they were interested in, stuff they'd done over the years, and it dawned on them that they had been on the soccer field together when Sterling's, uh, the drummers' school, played against Grant's school in Slidell, Louisiana. And um, and that Sterling had faked a fall, and Grant got, uh, you know, penalized
2: by it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my gosh, that is awesome.
0: Yeah. So they... <laughs> <laughs> and they're now playing together again in a group called Flo- the Flood Twin. But it was just like,
2: you asshole.
0: <laughs> you know, we're just starting the band out. So um,
2: were you guys playing? Uh, was this new material that you were playing, or was it old Mary, My Hope stuff or covers? No, uh, we didn't
0: really even touch the Mary, My Hope stuff very much. A couple things about it. Um, I felt that there was likely to be a lot of comparisons to Mary, my hope and uh i didn't really want that and the focus for me was on you know building an intense record that really didn't necessarily have a lot to do with Mary, my hope at all Right. right and so we started you know working on songs that you know the silver tongues have like has like a kind of like a calypso or a reggae influence to it I mean, although kind of a punkish reggae influence to it yeah. it has got a bit of that going on to it Jets to it, and you know, feeling of hope has got a little bit of like kind of R and B soul with some kind of Pink Floyd kind of sense to it. I mean, so like it was pretty diverse once more. Yeah. So feeling
2: um, of hope is one of my favorite songs you've ever written. I absolutely love that song.
0: Uh, that's uh, that came on, so I got this new phone that can store more music than I own on it, <laughs> and, and so I've been surprised because it has taken everything off the computer and rendered it into MP3 and in listenable form to hear songs that I haven't heard in quite some time. And feeling of wow. hope like was among them a few weeks ago.
3: Wow!
0: And uh, I was driving up, and I just said. I reached out to Grant I said, man, that that solo on that song that Lynn plays is incredible. We were smart to double it. He doubled it. Okay. Um, and uh, he was like, that's the stud. And it's like the Ampeg stud. Grant had a uh, a, a guitar called the Ampeg stud. Oh, and wow. it, was, it was basically just an SG with a big speed type tremolo on it. Okay. But, um, but it was good sounding not the strongest pickups in the world, but like a good, a good solid piece of mahogany. And, um, I think Grant still got it
3: now. Oh, I cool. Still, I hope he
0: still has it. Yeah. But <laughs> Lynn, Lynn needed to borrow that a lot of the time whenever the Hoffner was down. But yeah. And that, that song with all of us down, do 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 do, Yeah. Was kind of edgy and experimental for, for us at that particular time. Cause I um you know hadn't really messed with the diminished chords at all before or or um you know we you know of course Mary my hope was among the better fanners we call it fan um, when we kind of trill the guitars you know really fast strum them really really fast okay in order to get this kind of wash uh, kind of sonically speaking. It just sounds a certain way. Right. And uh, at the end of the song, it kind of goes into that thing where the only things happen and a cymbal wash, kick, and the guitars are fanning, and that kind of reaches a crescendo before it kind of wraps up. But um, but that stuff was, I mean, that was, gosh, um, that was uh, influenced by, I want to say Aaliyah. I think it's the r and B. Oh, or, really? Uh, yeah, she had uh, Something In My Heart, It's Got Me Hooked On You, I think was the, the hook. Something in my heart, something in my heart, got me hooked on you. Yeah. And I believe that was even originally a country song, even though it enjoyed most of its oh, wow. uh, status at R&B. As, am I right in saying that her name is Aaliyah? Let's see if that.
2: The singer who was killed in a plane crash soon after that, I think,
0: Um, not her. Okay, but it was a cool song, and I liked it anyway. (laughs) But I mean, you know, Mary J. Mary J. Blige with her "What's the Four One One Real Love" and all that sort of stuff was on my radar too as well. And it's not, it's not every day. I don't think I'm a avid acolyte of American R and B, but. Like when Nelly came out with Country Grammar, I mean, that was such a breakout record. and such a different, different thing that I was, I found it was incredibly infectious and I loved it, Michele. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it was just such a, it was like more of a field holler than hip hop. Okay. You okay. know, I got into it for that. So, those are those, you know, these artists over the years have definitely influenced me.
2: How did Amy Ray from the Indigo Girls get involved with My Love, Sex, and Spirit?
0: She had come out to a show that we did at the Claremont Lounge, I believe. And um, when um, she was out there, she's like, you know, hey, it was like, let's, you want to do a record? I said, yeah, i the talk. Yeah, sure. So, so we got to talking, and, uh, and she's like, okay, well, this is what I can do. This is what I have available. And, and uh, we were, our manager at that particular time was a guy named Frank. And one of his high school friends, Brian Harden, was doing the record. And was he was working as an engineer in Nashville and working pretty hard, you know, Nashville at that particular time. You know, getting a gig as an engineer, you're having to hustle all the time, and he just wasn't yeah. sleeping at all. But he did, he was able to secure three 24-hour blocks of time for us to go in and record My less Six, and Spirit. And so that's what we did. We just, we'd work as hard as we could for three days straight and just wow. not sleep at all.
2: Oh, my God.
0: <laughs> so, Jeez. um yeah, it was kind of kind of wacky, but... We were able to do that and record and I think even sleep under the mixing board and just, you know, <laughs> crazy stuff. And he um, really, really helped. We ended up with just such a great, great product at the end of that, a record that was creative and, and it just, it, it didn't, I don't think it, it, de- it deviated from "Mary, My Hope's record just enough to be an, an original statement yet at the same time, I think that people that like Mary, and my hope could also dig it too as well.
2: Oh, for sure. The touring you did after that was what introduced me to you guys, I, to you and the, the band. I went to go see uh, Maria McKee live at, uh, in Philly at the yeah. theater of living arts. And, yeah. uh, me and my, my best friend Ed drove, it was like an hour from our house. So, we drove down. We get there, and you had just started your set, and so we get in and we're listening. And then all of a sudden, you pull out this trumpet, and you start blowing on this trumpet. I'm like, "This is amazing! I wasn't <laughs> expecting this at all. I was, I was just kind of expecting, you know, your, a typical opening act. Maybe I didn't know if if it was a local act or you were touring with her. But then you you blew out something completely different, like." I am so into this. This is amazing. And I went out and got the album immediately afterwards.
0: Wow, that's great. So you found the Geffen album.
2: I found no. I found the my. It's funny. We actually um, Ed and I both got different versions of the album. He got the the Geffen one was the one with the the lizard and the. Okay, uh,
0: that was the import.
2: Yeah, yeah. I got the other one. The okay. the one from Damon Records.
0: Yeah. Where did you locate it? Do you remember the store, Adam?
2: I remember exactly the store because it was one of the only places we would go to, to to find unusual stuff, and it was Princeton Record Exchange. Okay. In Princeton, New Jersey. Wow. Wow, that's cool. So they had... I don't think I've ever been to that store. It used to be incredible. With the way things are going lately, it's, it's not as big as it was, but... Yeah. And they had a... It was two enormous rooms. You go into the front door, and it was all new stuff, and it had racks on upon racks of, of C- uh, CDs, new imports, everything. Then you went into the back room. You go down a couple steps, and it was the perimeter was all used CDs, all of the, and promos and stuff. Because the Princeton uh, the radio station would get tons of promos and just trade them or sell them to wow. Princeton Record Exchange. And then, so they would have, a, you know, tens of thousands of used CDs all over the place, and in the middle of that was all old vinyl. So the, the all the old vinyl was surrounded by used CDs. So wow, it was an amazing place. I, I haven't been there in twi- uh, oh, 20 years or more, but uh, my
0: buddy Ed's yeah, was... a good record store man. An incredible thing.
2: Yeah, it was amazing. It was we would go every couple of weeks. We'd have a bunch of money in our pockets from working and just go burn it down at Princeton record exchange. Yeah. Those are the days.
0: What are you, what were you working doing at that point?
2: I was a photographer. Okay. I was, uh, I was working for a studio, but you know, I was a single guy. Yeah. didn't have a whole lot of expenses. So
0: Now, do you remember a guy named Matt Clowney?
2: The name is familiar, but I'm not.
0: He was um, among the first kind of selfie photographers that I ever saw. And so he'd always be at the shows in Philadelphia or kind of the general area. Okay. And he would take a photograph of himself and me in the photographs. (laughs) And, you know, he had a camera with a little bit, you know, a long arm. Yeah. But he would do or maybe some sort of extension kind of thing on it. He would do that. Oh, and that's uh awesome. he was a he was a bit of an odd sort, but uh <laughs> yeah, I've mean, you know, I have no idea. I haven't mean, kept track of where he is, but uh but he was um an interesting guy.
2: That's awesome. And,
0: and then there was a Side magazine with uh Sandra that was put out up there. Do you remember B Side magazine up there?
2: I don't know. Yeah.
0: The B side was in Philadelphia, and they did a "Mary, My Hope" interview in oh, wow. 1989, and uh, then or 90, and then they did an interview with with me later on than that, or a couple of times after that too, as well. But, um, but that was B side, kind of B side fanzine slash mag- magazine. But they, you know, they talked to Trent Reznor and and oh, like awesome. any of the current artists that were coming up and out. Uh, I remember even they had reviewed a uh David uh David Feldman show and uh kind of neat stuff going on up there.
2: Yeah, okay. and neat area.
0: Philly is such an interesting place. I um, you know, I journal every day at this point, and okay. um this morning I put on Flood Ambiance, which almost anything you enter into YouTube and put ambiance after it, you can kind of find something.
3: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Um, And and just, it's kind of a way of kind of not distracting, but be able to listen to some music and and hear as you're working, as you're, as I'm writing. And um, I did that, but I also, I was, something caught my eye and it was basically, I think it's like Kensington Avenue in Philadelphia. And it's a bit of a thing. And it's just like, like, miles and miles of like homeless kind of street life.
3: Oh wow.
0: And um I just it was intense. I was watching that today and uh I'd like to know a bit more about it. I just don't know like how that came on my radar and uh and kind of what the what the deal is. Um I mean, I know that a lot of America has its poverty district. You know, right, as yeah. it's areas where you've got Tent City and yeah. stuff like that going on. But um, Philadelphia, historically, had been a pretty encouraging experience. You know, uh, you know we recorded uh, the Geffen record up in Conshohocken, but I'd done the mixing oh, for yeah. my Love, Sex and Spirit singles down in uh, Studio 4. And have enjoyed, you know, downtown Philadelphia many, many times. Oh, yeah. And uh, playing J.C. Dobbs and uh, going to to pizza afterward. Where was the pizza joint afterward? What was that place called? Uh, Starts with an L. But anyway. um,
2: I don't remember. It's been so many years since I've been to Philly. Yeah. And,
0: um, but it was like, it was just that pizza joint and J.C. Dobbs. That was the hang. (laughs) Yeah. you know, uh, on the Mule Six and Spirit tour, um, fairly early on in the life of that record, you know, we were heading up, and so he says, "Hey man, you should play Goober and the Peas." I said, "Okay, Goober well, and the Peas, we don't really know them." And we show up, and and they're in a RV with hay in the back. They have little stories for hay in the back, and <laughs> and they're doing this kind of like kind of Iggy with Hank Williams. You know kind of thing going on to it oh wow, Actually, a senior kind of thing going to it and uh they had a particularly young drummer named Jack white, and uh he turned i think he may have turned sixteen on stage that night that we played at oh j c Dobbs
2: gosh.
0: I don't know when he was born, but if it was uh nineteen ninety three or nineteen ninety four probably nineteen ninety four when that happened oh. and uh you you could trace out that date of us being on the bill together i remember the singer saying i oh, had a young jack white on the drums here tonight he's uh just turned 16 or however old he yeah. was like he's he is single ladies he's looking for quality time if you're looking for quality time with young man single <laughs> you
2: know? so, uh, so oh um, my god well speaking of, of touring i mean you played with uh pretty diverse amount of people. I mean, I saw you on the Mary McKee tour and then yeah. you ended up playing with rage against the machine as well.
0: Yeah. That's, yeah, we did.
2: There's like two completely different ends of the spectrum. I mean, Maria yeah. wasn't playing lone justice stuff at the time. She had her solo stuff, which was actually a little heavier. Yeah. But it wasn't rage against the machine heavy.
0: No, it's a, uh, it's, and that was, you know, that was our difficulty in trying to kind of find our way you know, and and kind of how we fit in the um, and I don't even know if it would have been an easy ride. You know, even if something did take it radio or whatever, I just I yeah. think that we were an odd fit, and <laughs> uh, the uh, um, but no, I mean, Mary and My hope opened up for Jane's Addiction. Uh, we opened up for Love and Rockets. We opened up for The Godfathers. Oh wow! But we had a hard time finding a foothold or or a easy band to tour with. And, you know, throughout the years as James Hall, I mean, like, it, it just was kind of hard for us to kind of pair up with somebody that would be, like, an immediately good fit. We played with the Indigo Girls for a few of the dates of the uh, Damon release, the first time out with Damon Records. Oh, wow. So, and that was great. And their audience is very, very receptive. But it's incredible. We're playing big, big, big halls with Indigo Girls.
2: Oh, man, yeah, they're a pretty big draw. They're
0: a big draw. They're a big draw, and they, you know, and they really deserve it. They've got the songs for it. And so, I mean, being in New Orleans certainly exposed me to a lot more Roots music and Roots dynamic. The other thing that happened when I was there is within the, within the first few months of living in New Orleans, I got a phone call on my landline. From a guy named Rick Morrison who knew Johnny from Hanging Francis. Well, I didn't know Johnny from Hanging Francis all that well either, but like he knew him and some of the other guys up in Atlanta. And he was at the train station, and you know, would I be open to getting together? Well, so he and I got together and went and had breakfast at the Bluebird. And then came back to my house, and he started to talk a bit about music, and talk about Chet and Jerry. He was crazy for Chet and Jerry. And then I started hearing him play, and realized that he was a great guitar player by any stretch. Okay. Um, and I just never heard anybody that was actually as 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 good at playing as he was. And um, I didn't really play guitar a lot when he was there. It was just he was. That advanced from my skill set and my ability at that point. Oh, wow. And I thought I knew something. And he was that far along that I didn't really feel like playing much. I did listen to a lot of music when he was there. And of course, I listened to his playing while he was there. But he'd go out and invariably go to the French Quarter and play with pops and he'd play with uh, whoever was on the street uh, playing music and was just kind of really getting into the songs. And he says that, you know, I would. I would like to get to the, myself to the point where I can spontaneously compose. And it sounded kind of interesting to me, and and he would insist that we go on walkabouts. <laughs> and walkabouts, um, which is basically walking and talking while he rolls a cigarette. But I learned a lot while he stayed with me. He stayed with me probably about six weeks. And the reason he was touring the U.S. Uh, is because Amtrak had a single fare summer okay. so if you paid like you know $200 or something like that you could travel anywhere you wanted to in the states for that summer wow for free okay. on Amtrak a for that one you know for that one not for free but for that one price
3: point. Right, right
0: and, uh, and so he wanted to come to New Orleans and he was very interested in flatland music low country culture low country music and then um and then when he left like within a day or two of him leaving because I'd been exposed to so much gradually what he was communicating to me in terms of diminished chords and in terms of of uh of rhythm um started to sink in so you know I didn't know what rhythm was before he came to town oh really um I didn't, I, I mean, I knew what beat was, I knew what melody was, but I didn't really know what rhythm was. And um, rhythm is almost like a, a spirit that rides between beat and melody. And that, that borrows some of melody, it borrows some from beat, but it doesn't necessarily take up the real estate of both. Okay, wow and uh and his conviction and Rick's Rick's conviction was that if you if you can play rhythm you can play with anybody.
2: I can see that. For sure. And uh
0: and so anyway that was a that was something that advanced my guitar playing considerably after he left because I didn't really know anything about how to play like funk or r and d or how the you know how important the footwork is to that orientation of, of more American roots music. Okay. So I started listening more acutely to that stuff, and and, uh, and it wasn't that I it was just then I immediately got into Al Green, but it was like, you know, I was starting to like look more acutely at Nile Rodgers and look more acutely at stuff that I'd already heard growing up but didn't understand how it was rendered on guitar right and uh and you know so i got into you know marvin Gaye's what's going on album i got into uh the stevie wonders fulfilling this first finale album i got into like just so many things that were taking me deeper and deeper into history and ended up influencing the my love sex and spirit record and then also the the geffen record too
2: So how did the Pleasure Club album become Pleasure Club the band? Well, when
0: we, when, you know, when I'd gotten dropped by Geffen, you know, we were able to make the record we wanted to make, and most major labels will let you do that at least once, but then they kind of want to have, they want to levy influence or kind of want to make sure that this goes commercial, And, and, you know, I wanted it to be commercial to as well, but I kind of had my own ideas about that, you know, and they were not identical to, to other, to others' ideas about that. Right. But um, when um, we went to, uh, you know, at some point, Geffen was no longer Geffen. Geffen was at Interscope Records, Interscopes, uh, you know, I'd been through a handful Of ANRs from the time I was with Geffen through Interscope and all that. And we had a good guy at Interscope. But then at some point, um, Jordan Schur came in and he just was like, I'm not feeling this. And so we we were dropped. Wow. um, And Grant and I were talking, and neither of us felt like we were really done yet. And we were both very, very interested in doing something that was compelling. And, uh, and interesting. And initially it was kind of like James Holland, The Pleasure Club, and that was kind of the tail end of the Geffen years. Okay. Then um, I started to introduce Grant to Jay Joyce and Mike Jerome, and then uh, we had a guitar player working with us for a while named Mike Graff, but it was Mark Hutner who had a band called Twig in Los Angeles. that really, really just, I mean, I said to Grant, I said, he's, he's wild, he's our guitarist. And so we made the appeal to him and he had kind of tried out working with me before, but it was, it was different. It was, he was, it was if—and he loved the Geffen record, but he was being so deferential to me that we couldn't get a good, we were never going to get a good take out of him.
2: Oh, uh, okay
0: so it was only when he was really kind of free to be wild that we were going to get like really great performances out of Mark and um and so he joined the band and and when that happened you know we knew that we had something special we knew we had the you know kind of the, the visceral visceral impact of of birthday party with some of the kind of psychedelic of of spaceman three and uh just we had something a good a really really good mix of content and influence and um you know kind of the i mean we just kind of became an original statement i mean that band still i think exists as an original statement just based on its chemistry alone because no one plays the drums like michael jerome no one and and then when Michael Jerome sings with me, that blend is a particular thing, too, as well. Right. Um, sure. Uh, when Grant plays bass, but no one plays bass like Grant does. Yeah. He is not the notiest player ever, but he is probably one of the most convicted players, one of the most convincing players ever for bass being this, an important role in good rock music. And then uh and then Mark is very experimental with his playing. He loves the big hollow bodies, he loves X, he loves a lot of like noise, but he is just a great, great player, really inspired and really um interesting player. And uh and it was funny, I remember one time when we were at Rehearsal Space and and he's just like, So you play a strat? I said, Yeah, I play a strat. And he's just like I never pictured you playing a strat. I said, Well, what do you picture me playing? He's like, Well, there's those hollow bodies. I say, Well the <laughs> hollow body was stolen. <laughs> but um uh, but it is true that like, you know, his context was, you know, one thing on Geffen and everything. And but um it doesn't matter what you're playing, um, uh, but th- there are certain things that we can kind of render certain ideas with. And so like um when it came to doing uh, Shout Your Automatic, a song like that, I was playing the riff out initially uh, for the automatic part of the song. I was playing that out on strats. Yeah,
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, and you know and uh, like I um, you know I still I still like strats uh, even though you know a lot of people associated with you know Eric Clapton and Eric Johnson and right. Stevie Ray Vaughan and all yeah uh, yet I still think that they have a special thing that they can do I think that they're a special really special instrument oh for sure but they're they're not cheap anymore because we have so many famous strat players that are dead, dead now. Yeah. I don't think
3: they
2: did. I don't think they killed them.
0: (laughs) But it's funny, like, because Mark, his interpretation of Pleasure Club, he brought a lot to the table, you know, a lot of stuff that I had really heard that he brought to the table, but it's funny too as well, there was also interesting blends too, because there'd be like a record that, you know, we were digging that Grant and me had dug for years that Mark had never heard before, you know. Okay. And then there'd be another record that I never heard, but, or maybe actually I had heard. Um, there's a record called Eric Burden Sings the Hits of the Animals or something like that. And it's basically, <laughs> it's a rethinking of all of the 60s animal hits and a few others, Nice and White Satin among them. And, okay. But it's, okay. it's a really cool sounding record. Because it was done with you know studio musicians in 1978, and so it doesn't sound like '60s Animals. It sounds like Animals with the you know the emotional rescue band or, right. or the Miss You, you know the Some Girls band from Rolling Stone. It's got the oh, Phaser, wow. Flanger, and all that stuff.
3: Yeah, on. yeah.
0: So it's um. It's its own, or Alice Cooper. Some of the stuff even sounds like Alice Cooper. It's just, just a wild mix of of good songs. Just they've done it differently with uh, that that album. And and that Grant and me had already heard that. And then Mark said, "Have you heard this?" And it was a rare album to to his credit, but we had. You know, <laughs> we already loved it. We're already very familiar with. It. So,
2: so there was a pretty sizable gap between the Geffen album and then Pleasure Club the band and again after the second Pleasure Club album between that and what came next which was I think the Futura Bold came next after Pleasure Club right in both of those instances I mean are you still out playing music or did you put it down again for a little bit or
0: no I was uh, I was out playing music and, and doing stuff but also you know between the Geffen records kind of we reached kind of the end of the touring cycle for that um, my son was born in january of 1997 okay so that was starting a process in my life that was important to me and you know in some respects being on geffen and not having sold a lot of records meant that you know i was able to spend a lot of time with him right and play with them and and see him grow and care for him and so I stayed home with him a good while, and then when Pleasure Club got, uh, Pleasure Club started recording uh, around 2000, 2001, uh, for the Here Comes the Trick record. I was born in to a terminal dive You won't see me waiting for my moment to arrive children before the service flood your mind. Move faster, baby. You't want let the rhythm. Grind. It did take some time to both get the songs together. Uh, I mean, I remember even going out to demo with the Geffen band at Mike Campbell's studio and playing with um, PW Long. W. Long's Real Foot and uh, talking with Mac McNeely about having kids and being married and all of that. And and he's like, How's it going? I said, I'm tired. (laughs) And he says, Well, you should be. Yeah. I said, Really? He's like, Yeah. He's like, I've got two. I think my wife wants to have another one. And I said, Wow. He, He says, But I said, When does it get easier? He says, Right at about a year. I said, really? Forget. Like, yeah. And sure enough, true to, true to form, it got easier right at about a year. Your yep. son's starting to get independent. And then also my expectations over this life being a part of my life, um, this new life being a part of my life, I acclimated it. I acclimated to it because you've already been through a January before. Right. So this is January, second time around. <laughs> and he's you know, and starting to play more and starting to interact more. And so there's a it's kind of a really cool thing that happens across the years. They get easier as you go, you know, in a certain regard.
2: Yeah, I agree. And it's an amazing thing to watch. It's it's an amazing thing to watch.
0: You know. And so I was very, very lucky to have to have not been famous or to be you know, touring all the festivals and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, I remember sometime around there, probably nineteen ninety eight, nineteen ninety nine, seeing Chris Cornell, not seeing him in person, I've only seen him seen them play just a handful of times, but but seeing film of him playing the European festivals and Black Hole Sun was out and right. and it had really had a great showing at the charts. And um but he looked so disconnected from that and so unhappy doing it and i mean i could i understood it even though i wasn't experiencing it myself but i understood how it can be terrible when you're in a band it's just it can be just terrible and um and a lot of that is like you know mental stuff and
2: well, like as you know, if you're out on tour and you have kids, it's not like a day job where you can go home and you see your kids at the end of the night. You know, you're away from no. weeks and months at a time. It's just yeah. I can only imagine how difficult that's got to be.
0: Yeah, no, especially for people that are really you know passionate about having their kids. You yeah, know, and being with their kids, it's just such a crazy disconnect. Oh, God, and yeah. um, and you know, it's not lost on me that how um pilots and people that are in the flight industry can end up you know with some pretty formidable addictions because they're just separated from the ones they love so much of their work of their work week and their and their lives yeah and and then you know their comped meals at the hotel you know they get cheap rooms or comp rooms at the hotels and yep, and they um you know and they're kind of just away from their family and yeah. food
2: and if if you if you love your family if you if that's where you want to be then you're doing things maybe to kind of get your mind off of the pain that you're in so it, yeah i can totally understand how bad things can happen to some good people like that
0: yeah that's a tough tough aspect of of yeah. the music music life and especially like if things are going well on the road too, like, yeah. and, and you know, you're ascending and you're putting money away and all this kind of good stuff. And yet you're just further and further away from your family.
2: Yeah. And um, just thinking about the things you're missing, you know, you get, you're making some, a great living possibly, but you're missing first steps, first words, first, oh my gosh. first, it'll never yeah. come back
0: yeah and i um I'm, I was lucky that I was able to be there for the, be around for that yeah and uh yeah, and I don't know how that could have happened with things working out the way that I had hoped that they would have. right you know, I make no assumptions that P. J. Harvey oh has an easier Monday than I had today.
2: right,
3: right.
0: You know, I've learned that, that life is tough no matter who you are and that there's, you know, certain obstacles and and indignities that are part of the experience of of having a Monday.
2: Right. You know? Exactly. And then in the end, we're all only here for a limited amount of time. As, you know, unfortunately, we just lost Charlie Watts and yeah. a few other people recently. So, it, you know, you can't take it, the money with you. You, you know, you, it's... It's, it's a balancing act, I'm sure, for people. I've never had to do it, but I can, I can imagine how difficult it's got to be.
0: It's difficult, and yet at the same time, you're also you're in the enviable position to have a successful tour sometimes. So I'm not certain that rock and roll is a young man's game. I'm fairly certain that it's, it's for people that have got some degree of maturity and some degree of perspective you know, for me to be, you know, trying to uh, utilize or, or, or um, use leverage social media so I could be more popular and maybe sell more records or something like that or get more likes or more hits or more followers. It's, it doesn't seem to be a whole lot that I'm interested in right now right. In, in, in regard to the record business. Um, I know that social media is controlling the record business. But if you don't, if I don't have
2: to play the game
0: that way, I'm probably happier oh, and, and better off.
2: Yeah. Well, that's also, like you said, a level of maturity that maybe a, a younger artist doesn't have.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, let's not forget, like, you know, Mark Sandman was putting out his finest work with morphine in his 50s, early 50s. Very true. So it doesn't mean that, you know, what he did before that was not good. It just meant that it took a while for the audience and the vision to connect.
2: Yeah. How did the future of Bold come about? because that's a completely different band
0: it is um, so uh...
2: and sound it
0: 2005 myself my wife and my son were in hurricane katrina and we had um evacuated to memphis and uh we weren't really certain where we were going to go uh, we were in the enviable position of needing jobs schools my wife is an educator and my son was in third grade at the time and housing and um uh, my sister-in-law had talked to the principal at her school and said that that the principal was willing to hold a spot for our son, oh, and wow. so we came over to Kennesaw, Georgia, from Memphis on October first, and uh, and my son enrolled in elementary school up in Kennesaw. My um, uh, wife and I and our son also lived with um, my sister-in-law and her husband in. And um, for better part of a year, almost a year. Wow! And um, that was uh, intense times, adjusting to you know having a winter. Right. Um, yeah. And adjusting to being here. I was interested in working with this guitarist named Chris Piskin, and uh, Chris had come down to New Orleans to try out for Pleasure Club and he was really good, but not perhaps the best match for that band. Okay. Uh, but him and Grant had bonded, and, and he had, and I had bonded, he was a young guy. So we, um, we got to working uh, pretty rapidly after I got to Kennesaw, and uh, he had a friend, and Bruce had a friend in Marietta, and so we'd, they'd drive up to Marietta, I'd drive down to Kennesaw and we'd start working. And we really basically started that way. We started like working and recording on that stuff. Okay. Bruce was in the bass, was playing bass at that particular point and recording everything. And in fact, uh, on one of the excursions there, Ours was in town. And so hours came by and they came by the studio and recorded some and and uh, and that was really it just a really interesting time to be in a basement in Kennesaw, and then Trill trying to kind of put stuff together and work and do this. Um, Our record came out maybe in 2007 or so. Initially in 2007. And it was strong too as well, but it was a different, an entirely different thing. And, uh, And I do think that the mood of Katrina is definitely indelibly on that record. And, uh, but it was a good band and so we did uh, a number of records that way and we were working with chris a bunch uh chris would have like a song or a musical statement and then we work with it um but it was pretty open pretty open-ended and i was starting to get into collab- more directly collaborative work at that particular point
2: you mentioned katrina and i know that had a huge impact on on so many people did it and besides the you know the the physical damage that it did and 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 the displacement of of you know the hundreds of thousands of, of people did it affect the way you approach music at all did it affect any, your songwriting or the way you collaborate with anybody
0: it did um and i'll say this i mean what happened is that i had been on uh on meds for uh, and, and and seeing a therapist for anxiety and depression.
3: Okay.
0: And uh, the um, the mental hospital that I was going to get these meds from and stuff like that flooded, <laughs> and so that wasn't going to be possible anymore. Right. And um and I you know and so I knew that. No matter how I felt about it, I wasn't going to have really have access to, to Lexapro where we were. And so I started um, journaling. And, uh, and not that journaling is a substitution for people who need SSRIs, mm-hmm. but um, when I went to journaling, it dawned on me that that the function of good mental health medication is to create support for healthy thought processes. Almost the same way you'd put a cast for a broken arm. Okay. Just to where the, the thought processes flow through the brain in a more healthy, balanced manner. Okay. I know that I'm getting into bad shape when, as opposed to the thoughts flowing through in a maybe curvy, if not linear fashion um that they become spirals, they become repeating oh. uh thoughts for me oh and wow, okay. um and so i did it did dawn on me that at that particular point that mental health, good mental health, like anything was a sacrifice. So, it was going to cost me money, you know, or time or attention or intention or a consideration. It was going to, it was going to, good mental health care was going to cost me something. Good health itself is a sacrifice. Right. And it's a sacrifice that I've learned is really worthwhile over time. But initially, I didn't really know quite what I was going to do, and, and of course, the, that particular medication, you go off of it hardcore, <laughs> just the synopsis are firing, and you kind of like feel like you got these electrical shocks going on in your head. Oh, wow. And, uh, and then that, you know, with all of the the stuff that was going on with Katrina, but it gave me a chance to actually really understand that the world is always changing. Yeah. And so... The natural flow of a river is not one direction on a given curve. Rivers over their lifespan, they'll, you know, they'll move left, they'll move right, they'll swing, they'll arc, they'll bend, they'll do all manner of different things over their lifespan because that's the natural flow of water. And so for me to see my life as, well, this is the way that people are supposed to be. This is the way that the world is supposed to act. This is what is supposed to happen. That in me needed to be smashed. Oh. If I couldn't smash it, I wouldn't be happy. Wow. And 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 then, you know, and I started having to look at, okay, well, what degree of sickness and ego and suffering was I creating at that particular point? I was 38. So, I wasn't an old man necessarily, but right. but I started you know thinking that like you know, in terms of creating uh, a impossible dynamic in the bands that I've been in before, um, I done it in terms of trying to control others or or attract you know attention to what I'm doing. None of it made me one iota happier. And there's a Fugazi song, you can't be what you were, so you better start being who you are. Yep. I hated it. <laughs> um, but in that moment, it dawned on me that I wasn't no longer going to be able to continue to be who I'd been before, and it didn't matter because all the evidence of what I'd done over the years was gone anyway. Right all the interviews, all the attention, all the British press, all that shit was gone. You know, so with all of that evidence of what I'd been up till now, either in a landfill
3: or in the Gulf of Mexico somewhere, who am I going to be now? Because if I had so
0: identified with myself as the singer, as the front man, as the musician, as the Dynamic.
3: Who am I going to be now? Got no skills. Got no job. Don't have housing. Who am I going to be? And I didn't really know
0: who I was going to be after Katrina, not right away. But I knew that I wanted to put joy at a higher priority. Um, I wanted to put awareness at a higher priority, I wanted to put usefulness at a higher priority, I wanted to put uh, loving and kind and and receptive at a higher priority in my life, healing, (laughs) I wanted to be that too, and so, you know, I started doing the reading and and some of the work in terms of owning up to my part in the suffering that I helped create by needing fame, by needing money, by needing all of these things that were not really making me one bit happier. Right. And so I started looking into the, the work of presence, which Eckhart Tolle talks greatly about in um, Power of Now. I started reading Conversation with God, some of the Marianne Williamson stuff, the Pima Chandra stuff. Deepak Chopra. I mean, like, I was kind of going for anything that was kind of more of a spiritual nature. Okay. That was really speaking to me more than, well, if they just fucking do what I tell them to play, everything would be fine. Right. And um, then I started understanding other musicians uh, more acutely in The Future of old, which you mentioned, playing with Bruce was an eye-opener. Bruce plays out all the mistakes. So he rehearses, and there's mistakes and clams all over the place. (laughs) And, uh, And he does that until those are distilled, and what he's left with is a good performance. Okay. And uh, I'd never met anybody like that in my life, but i never left room for anybody like that in my life. It was always, you This this, how you do it, this is how I learned it, this is how it is. And when I began to accept that people learn music very, very, very differently from me, at that point, I was able to actually understand, okay, this is how you can work with somebody else. This is how you can collaborate. Wow. So that... You know, and then, you know, kind of the other thing, there's so many things that changed about how I viewed life after Katrina too as well. It's like, okay, well, if the elements of life are always changing, if, you know, the, the waters in the, in the creek are always moving fast, how can, I, how can I have any peace? I'm terrified and anxious, you know, how can I have any peace? And the only way that I knew that I could have peace was just that
3: if I put my foot out across the water, that a stone would be
0: there to meet it. Just knowing that. And I'm not worried about three or four steps ahead of me. Okay. I'm just getting myself con- you know, concerned over that I can reach one foot to the stone. Wow. And so I started living more like that. And you know, it took a while to really get journaling to be habitual, but but in doing so, I found that there's some benefit to me for it. And I mean my mom would argue this it's probably better for you than any of the SSRIs or the medic- mental health medication that they put you on. But I've for my own part, I've learned that I don't agonize over lyrics quite like I used to.
3: oh, oh okay.
0: Well, if you've already run a mile on Monday. And somebody asked you to do a fifty-yard sprint, it's not going to be a problem, right? You know, yeah. it'll be easy by comparison, right? Right. And it's kind of the same thing with journaling every day. I found that I am more inclined to be inspired than not because I'm willing to journal. Wow. And then it's also kind of helped me deal with fears or or idle thoughts or whatever. It's just we. I've learned to square off with a negative thought or negative emotion and kind of just put it down and it
2: doesn't take ownership. I can understand that. That makes sense to me.
0: And it helped me get over like myself about, you know, day jobs and stuff. Because I remember telling myself, this job is killing me. And um, I was hearing myself say that in New Orleans. Um, especially at a point where, granted, my relationship was contentious and and uh, I was doing some sort of renovation work for an investment house in, in New Orleans. And,
3: okay.
0: And uh, I heard myself say, this job's killing me. And um, of late or, or not long after that, after Katrina, my attitude was that this job is bringing needed money into my household to help pay for school uniforms, help pay for shoes, guests put guests in the car, and to teach me needed skills. And so my rhetoric, my story, my suffering went from this job is killing me to this job is providing needed money and economic health to my family. And showing me life skills.
2: You know, that's amazing.
0: And then here's the other thing is that, you know, I had like many musicians working in food service or swinging a hammer or whatever we're doing. We have the rhetoric that the story that says, they're not paying me enough for this shit. And then I started changing it. I said, they are paying me enough for this shit and it wasn't long before I started feeling it. You know, <laughs> it's like, hey, they are paying me enough for this shit. And then it was like, they are paying me enough for this work, for this value work. And then you know, I got myself to a point where I was asking, okay, money or value, money or value. Well, I know that working for money in and of itself is not something I can endorse would never encourage anybody to do that. But I started applying myself to value. And I thought, and I asked myself, okay, well, if I apply myself to work for value, is it possible that I will look back on my life having never become a slave to money? And I say that with the caveat that even some of the things that I enjoy cost money. Right. You know, I like good food, just like anybody. Yeah. Even the, some th- even the things that I love, That I value cost me money. But I realize that, you know, at this point in time I'll be a bitch for value. I don't mind it. But money has its limits. And I know that, you know, there's certain capitalist modeling that'll say that, oh well, everybody has their price. But The litmus test is, and I ask people all the time, I ask them, what amount of money could you throw at a toxic relationship and everything would be peaceful and kumbaya?
2: There is
3: none.
0: So money, though powerful and a tool, has its limits. Very true, very true. And the more I became aware of that, the more it was easy to get on board with my own work of, for value. You know, so if, if I'm an economist, I'm a behavioral economist, I guess. But I started, you know, I and mean, I've had a number of different opportunities to learn and relearn this lesson. Do you work for money? Do you work for value? And I found that working for value works better for me.
2: This is a, a very timely conversation. And I'm uh, thank you. It's kind of make it's making me think a lot.
0: You know, when certain things happen in the workspace, and you know, there's the invariable dignity indignities and getting thrown under the bus and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. You know, there does come a point where you can say, "Okay, do I go back to the old job that I had? Do I go, you know, elsewhere? Do I?" It's like, "Well, fuck you! I'm going to go work for him." Yeah. You know, or. Do I get to a point where I'm actually aware enough, present enough, in order to actually ask myself, okay, do I like the nature of the work I'm currently doing now, or do I like what I was doing eight years ago? And at that point, the answer is simple. I love the nature of the work that I'm doing right now. No argument. Okay. And, um, you know, and this job is supporting me. This job is offering me opportunities and, you know, financial benefits and also freedoms that that come with that and sometimes without that. So I had to, you know, remember that while I was learning, you know, how to do residential wiring, or while I was learning how to do, you know, like finished carpentry or framing or whatever, that there's a there's a point to me learning that. And the point to learning that was to help me become less of a slave to money, but, a, you know, a willing bitch for value.
2: <laughs> I like it. I have been going back and, and listening to Future Bold and The Steady Wicked. Yeah. And I got to say, this is war EP. Well, first of all, I did a little digging on YouTube and I did see this amazing... Live studio performance you guys did with Futura Bold. We played like Euroskank
0: and For the Riches.
2: Yeah. I got to tell you, I I like Euroskank on the album, but that live performance is even better. (laughs) wild I love that
0: yeah and um and and that's you know that's who we were and that you're getting a live band to come alive on record is a big challenge in the music industry right we're not the only ones yeah but (laughs) but that's something that is often elusive but um but no that particular live performance that was shot in Athens okay and uh that was a really cool day.
2: Both tracks were fantastic, but Gank is my favorite. That was just Okay. The,
0: that's great.
2: Just the power coming out of the guitar and your vocals and it was just it, Yeah. It, it was just amazing.
0: Yes. And that's uh you know and, so, and that was not typical of working with Chris. Chris would have kind of like a musical kind of idea pulled together and uh and then I was just like, okay, well, the chorus seems like it's saying "Euro Skank." I'm like, what does that mean? It's like, I don't even know. <laughs>
3: you
0: know. And then, you know, we kind of developed the chorus of like, you are a Skank." you may never be a star, but you look so good when you crash your car.
2: I love that line.
0: And then, um, you know, and, we, and then build it from there. And then the, the, a lot of like, if, if you got a good chorus, you got something to work with.
2: Well, that and, whole song is... It just came together fantastically, and that especially in that live performance, it was yeah, I think. Yeah, also look at that again. Oh, yeah, I think that's actually my favorite track on that album is yours, King. But the EP you did a few years after that, This Is War, yeah, that's just even heavier. That it's yeah, that is amazing. I mean, it sounds kind of like Soundgarden got funky or something. I don't yeah.
3: know, yeah. The mess made. If there's a chance to start all over, where you choose it all the same? Clouds form as you make your way through the alleys and the city gate.
2: Yeah, and even your vocals are just a little different than what I was used to um, that your approach was different from Pleasure Club and, and your early solo stuff. Yeah.
0: Oh yeah. No and that was um, you know songs were taking shape in a different way and that's got like Let Love Find You Overthrown on it that's got
2: This Is uh, this War is, which is a great war,
0: war on it too as well yeah.
2: We Shoot Golden
0: uh, We Shoot Golden. That's another example of Chris and I working well together um, Chris passed on in uh twenty fourteen oh, died wow. uh, from a i guess it's a, a cardiac endocarditis um, oh, wow, and so we lost him
2: oh I'm so sorry
0: so uh so we shoot golden was another example of that you know if it like okay, we shoot golden, what does that mean I don't know we shoot golden, but then you know when when I started kind of building the verses for it, it's like, if you're tired of bully boys, you smile sincerely, as they take your choice. Look to us. You have a choice. We shoot golden. You know, the doctor saying that you won't heal, the medication makes you ill, we will give you something you can really feel. We shoot golden. If you're
3: haunted by-
0: An advertising pitch.
3: Right. Um,
0: and uh, like in the way of like dirty deeds to under cheap. If you know you're having trouble with your you know high school jock or whatever, we do dirty deeds to under cheap. Right. Call us, you know, <laughs> one call, that's all.
3: Yeah.
0: And um, I like how songs can be like advertising slogans, but that's what we shoot golden is.
2: I think shallow water. It might be, I don't know, it's, it's like nothing I've ever really heard before. It's
0: kind of like. Yeah, that was actually from a dream. Um, really? I, I dreamed um, that there was all of this shouting in this, in this song called Shallow. This is
3: shallow water,
0: this
2: shallow water.
0: And uh, so we just started that. We started that with vocals. We didn't really have any musical ideas for it right off the bat. Oh, Wow. But, um, yeah, my young son's on there and, and one of his buddies on there in the chorus. And stuff. Oh, that's awesome. And, uh, and, uh, and yeah, it's kind of a crazy, a song, but I would say that that would certainly be a more root influence. And, you know, I, I, I've really never spent any time with Soundgarden at all, but I've come to really appreciate them and their legacy. And I did have a dream that, uh. I was headed to a festival with Chris and um, this spring, and we're driving in a you know a passenger van to the festival, and that he seemed really good. He just seemed at peace, and he was kind of joking, and kind of had a certain, uh, how do I say it? Um, um, just a very, very, very relaxed approach to getting up and doing a show with a bunch of songs that people were looking forward to hearing. And uh, and it felt good to have that dream because there's just, it was a deeply troubling death for me um, yeah. and, um, and shocking.
3: Uh, yeah, absolutely. Right.
0: And so, you know, when people like talk about, you know, what are you known for? It's like, well, I'm kind of, I do alternative rock, I guess what would it be called? You know, well, who are your peers? I was like, well... You know, my bandmates are my peers, but I mean, but you know, over the years, it was, you know, Jane's Addiction and and Stone Temple Pilots and and Soundgarden and Alice in Chains and you know, morphine and so many, and Jeff Buckley, and so many of these great musicians are no longer with us.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: it's we didn't make
2: it. It's amazing. It, it's it's. It's very sad when I think about how many have, have lost, and, and you know through not just through addictions and things, you know ac- accidents. Yeah, it's just yeah,
0: big chestnut. Yeah, uh, sparkle horse. Yeah, um, uh, I mean just just mental illness, death, institution, old dirty bastard. I mean like old dirty bastard's my age. You know, he's my peer. Yeah. And uh, I don't think, I think the only time he had sober since he was a little kid was when he was incarcerated.
3: Jeez. You know,
0: and um, there's a lot of collateral damage. I met his son. There's oh, really? a lot of collateral damage. Wow. Yeah. That comes as a result of mental illness and addiction.
2: Well, you picked up with another band. The Steady Wicked, which has yeah. a l- different sound, again, from of Bold.
0: Well, Steady Wicked was interesting because, I mean, in some respects, we kind of formed so we could do shows with ours. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Somewhat. I mean, like, it was, we wanted to do something that we could put together ad hoc pretty quick. And uh, for our first shows that we were doing stuff, we were just bringing our guitars up to Nashville to open for hours or whatever to play a show. Oh, cool. And, um, and we were doing it because we had songs that we really enjoyed playing and we really believed in. And so, of course we have amplifiers now and we have all that other stuff, but, um, but it was you know some of the first things that we, first opportunities that we said yes to was to getting out of town and getting okay. a chance to play with, with other bands that we liked. And, I mean, I'll tell you, Jimmy, like if it wasn't for my friendship with Jimmy, I wouldn't play near as much. So, and especially during the years of, you know, post-Katrina.
3: Yeah. My yeah.
0: gosh.
2: Talk about chaos. Uh, I, yeah. I can't imagine. You know, uh, we moved up to Virginia shortly after that. And, you know, like I said, we weren't hit very hard by Katrina at all down where I lived in Alabama. So, you know, we we escaped it. But yeah we were on the periphery so we could see what was going on here. You know, people were coming from out of, you know, from New Orleans, our way and Houston and, and yeah. up to Mississippi, you know, it's just.
0: Now, where were you in Alabama?
2: I was Southeast. So, you know, where uh, Panama city beaches in Florida. Yep. I was, I lived exactly, I think 90 miles due North of that. Okay. So I was in uh, a little town called level Plains, but it was right outside of uh, Fort Rucker military base, okay, uh, six miles from the gate. So it was, it was a little bit okay. uh, west of Dothan.
0: Oh yeah, I know Dothan Op.
2: Yep. Oh yeah, I used yeah. to go through Op to go to work. Yeah. So, um, yeah.
0: <laughs> sold op. insurance in Op. Okay. Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it's a good place
0: to sell insurance.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, the uh, um.
2: You've never sold insurance in Op, have you?
0: No, no, I guess <laughs> I guess uh, you know whether somebody has experience or not. You Clearly, this guy, this gentleman has never sold insurance and op. That's <laughs> 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 kind of the litmus test of whether, whether what he has to say is any weight or not. Yeah, you know?
2: Let's see if he knows what he's talking about. Yeah, this <laughs> guy doesn't know
0: kind of what he's talking about. He's never sold insurance an op. If you ah. sold insurance and op, you've got a leg to stand on.
2: That was my job, and I barely sold any insurance and op. Yeah, so- <laughs> oh, yeah. So you were
0: supposed to, and you barely did a good job of that, yeah.
2: Exactly.
0: Yeah. I started changing after Katrina, and I, my um, relationship with alcohol ended in 2006. And um, I was, uh, you know, the, the behaviors of those around me were starting to trouble me, and I knew that my own relationship with alcohol was to numb negative emotions, negative feelings, and, if I didn't want to feel like the ultimate loser, I would drink right, and then I
3: stopped, and um if you know at this point now it's well, it's a few years on now,
0: and uh if alcohol could deepen my awareness and presence, I'd start tomorrow. My experience of alcohol, though, is that it does the opposite for me. It numbs me out. It kind of takes me out of the moment. Gets me thinking about something that I got no business thinking about, i.e. something I think I might be able to have control over, and I don't. Okay. And so that's no longer part of my life, but I'm still working at presence. I'm still working at removing things, or put it this way, not even removing things so much, but having a look at these things. Okay, does this serve me? In what capacities it serving me right now. Am I learning? Is it time to let go? You know. Okay. Just getting myself to that place. And and that's helpful when we get when we put it this way, it's been helpful for me when I get to that place with like a, where like I thought you let this go now. Yeah. Could be very, very presence giving. So, you know, I've been looking at housing. So I moved out from my marital home in twenty nineteen. My wife ex-wife filed for divorce in october 29 in october 2020 it was finalized in november 2020 and yet you know that's a relationship that started in 1990 so it's a 30-year relationship and so there's no real easy way out right yeah and uh It doesn't mean that I'm, you know, I'm scarred or damaged goods or anything like that. It just means that, you know, in order for me to to keep myself and to take care of myself, I've got to do it with all of my faculty. And, you know, I know relationships are tough no matter what, you know, the honeymoon, you know, phase of a relationship is the bait and switch. Yeah. But uh at this point right now, you know my son is refusing communication oh, sonny, and um, and my wife when you know I'm asking for communication is it's not been a good exchange with her and so I'm relegated to spending time meditating on uh, the gratitude that I have for ever even having had the chance to get married, the gratitude for ever even having had the chance to to change my son's diapers, to raise him, to introduce him to music, to care for him, to love him, to play with him. Yeah. And
3: so that's, that's where I want to be. I want to be there to where I'm open and
0: have a lot of gratitude and a lot of joy in my life, a lot of levity. So yes, these are tough things. It's not over. You know, the in some respects the effects of Katrina are still rippling out. They have long reaching ramifications, even though, you know, so far as the shock and the loss of everything, I'm sixteen years over it at this point.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, a lot of people are, you know, I don't know, I don't understand how you could, how could you lose all of that and be okay? Well, you know, I'm um, I'm aware that if I didn't feel I had access to my own happiness, I'd be a lot worse off. Yeah. You know, if I f- didn't feel like I had access to my own sense of accomplishment, my own sense of integrity, and and then I would be a lot less happy, okay. a lot less joyous. So, you know, that it is possible to have the experience. Katrina was a great teachable moment for me. It gave me the experience of being able to see how one can experience catastrophic loss on one hand and the loss of nothing of consequence on the other hand. Okay. Those two truths can exist simultaneously. And you know, and it and it dawned on me that you know, loss is a consolation prize of no longer being a teenager. If you're gonna, you know, if you're going to ascend into your 40s, your 50s, your 60s, you're gonna lose. Yeah. And it and it doesn't make sense. You're gonna lose people and and items and things and property and. All men, you know, work, jobs, whatever, you're gonna lose things that you'd prefer not to have to say goodbye to. Yeah. Well, in the same kind of thing that I was talking about, the world always changing, and well then how can I have any peace if that's the case? And I think the only thing that really makes any sense to me is just being for me to be grateful for ever even having had a home in New Orleans to begin with. Okay. A record collection. Yeah. Forever even having had a home in the Uptown District with hardwood floors. Forever even having had enough toys for my son to play with. You know? Right. So, I mean, gratitude for even that which I would not want creates an opportunity. Wow. And it's only when I can be grateful for that which I would not want can I see the opportunity in it? Wow. But I just didn't, I don't, I don't want to go back to being who I was.
2: Well, you, you seem to have a very grounded, healthy approach to things.
0: Well, I accept, you know, I've, I've learned that when, you know, when I argue with reality, reality doesn't get hurt about that, doesn't have any hurt feelings over it. I'm the one that gets
2: hurt <laughs> true very true so is is that part of what created the the change in the sound of the music with the especially with the steady wicked
0: oh, I would think that it's
3: the change is a byproduct of my variance of approach, so
0: in other words i didn't. Change the music in any conscious way. Okay. I changed. like okay well the the event of Katrina was 16 years ago yesterday but but i have to kind of take in everything that has changed over the years and that was go it was a little bit tough yesterday cuz i was thinking about okay well this is kind of a time where certain things that i was willing to ignore were really really hard for me to ignore you know this is where some of the some of my own poor behavior was really hard to reconcile reconcile with. And you know, and I was thinking and it was yesterday I was thinking about all the things that have happened for my son, my wife and I. And, you know, I'm um I'm where I need to be. I don't, you know, I don't feel that, oh, I should be elsewhere. I should be doing something else. I should be back with my wife or anything. I don't feel like that. I believe that if that is what's supposed to happen it will be absolutely clear to me.
3: Okay. Yeah.
0: You know, but you know in terms of moving back into a toxic dynamic I can't see how that would be good for me. Right. You know, I already have a um a propensity for making concessions to please others and then get but hurt when things don't go my way or or about hurt when you know my own needs aren't communicated or met or put it this way my own needs aren't met after being communicated don't feel don't talk don't trust help me survive childhood so there's a survival tools don't feel don't talk don't trust but they wreak havoc on every important adult relationship i've tried to have
2: yeah i can imagine that yeah if that's what, But if that's what you grew up with, that's hard to break.
0: It's hard to break. But in my case, it's part of who I want to be is to have those patterns broken, okay. you know? Yeah. Learning to trust, learning to feel, learning to communicate. And, um, you know, and all of those things are relatable and important in relationships, being able to communicate an emotion, you know, I feel this. Not, I feel like, I feel this.
2: That's a big distinction, too.
0: It's a big distinction. Feel like is a thought. And being willing to communicate, to name an emotion, to um, to be able to be, to allow myself to feel sad, allow myself to feel happy and proud, you know, and to be able to be a good communicator, too, you know. Well, And, that's... and then also to learn to trust that, I am being taken care of.
3: Yeah.
0: As long as I select something that is rooted in integrity at some level, I'm going to be more than taken care
2: of. Are you working on new material? Because the the last thing I'm looking at with the Steady Wicked, the album come out in what 2016.
0: So, yeah, we're working on new songs um, going in. Uh, We're taking a break until October, I think, but we've got... You know, we got to decide whether we're doing a, a acoustic record or an electric record. Okay. And um, you know, that's been rewarding too as well. You know, Bruce kind of saying, "Okay, well, we got both." You know, so okay, we have to decide which song's going to make it on the acoustic record. which is going to make it on the electric record, and, and the acoustic records have been really enjoyable to make too as well, just because they're they're challenging because you kind of you're working with sparse, bare bones kind of stuff, but yeah. at the same time if we're capturing a good performance, it could be just powerful. Is there anything that I've got electric? So that's been good. I mean, and I've worked all through the pandemic. Um, oh, because my yoga studio, as, as soon as they opened back up, they said, well, okay, we want to do live music again. So I started playing once a month at minimum at the yoga studio. And, oh, awesome! Uh, and that's just been great.
2: That is awesome. I, I, so I never thought of live music in a yoga studio.
0: Well, this um this particular practice does have uh, several nights a week a yin practice, which is really really slowed down postures, okay. slowed down movements. It's really going deep into the muscle tissue, the connective tissue, and the ligaments and cartilage bringing blood flow to those areas over across two to five minute poses. Okay. So the songs that I write, which are mostly two to five minutes, are great context for a practice like this. Okay. And so, you know, the instructor will give her their posture and kind of help people ease into it, and then I'll begin a song. And play it through, and then when the song completes, she'll bring them out of that posture and move elsewhere
2: okay but, but so you're not playing like permanent solution or illness no, <laughs>
0: no it's, it's, oh i I've, I've played illness before, but I mean, but not at like uh live volume right. uh level it's, in a, it's on an acoustic and it's in the room, but I'll play I found that a, a number of songs uh where I am and um work pretty well there so I mean like oh, cool. even if it renders as a live wire act song you know the lyric content for this stuff works and applies in a lot number of different ways so so I'm really kind of glad about that too
2: I have kept you for quite a long time here i I think we're running on like three hours almost at this point okay so okay but thank you so much for spending so much time with me and just, and talking about your career and, and all, this has really been wonderful.
0: Oh man, thank you. And, um, and you know, part of it's, I feel good knowing that some of what I had to share at some level, you felt that you needed to hear and, um, and that, that agrees with my desire to feel useful. Oh, well, I'm... And, uh, and to live with in some manner of intention. Not that, you know, that I'm supposed to get out there on the road, on the roadside and start helping people. <laughs> um, but, but that if, if some of the things that have occurred to me over the years can be helpful to somebody else, that's perfect for me. You know, I have a friend that years ago, he said this, like, man, I can't wait till the good Lord takes me out into the ministry and I can go out and I can be preaching and praising God. And, you know, he's working at Delta. I said, you're working at Delta, right? He's like, yeah. So you're no longer the youngest guy there, right? He's like, no, I've been there over 20 years. Okay. Well, you know, have you ever thought that maybe you're supposed to be a Delta? Yeah. How do you figure that? He's like, well, I said, you know, There's a lot of young guys coming in as mechanics, coming in from mechanics school. And they're living alone and they don't talk to anybody. And maybe the only encouraging thing they heard this week came from you.
2: Wow, yeah.
0: You're having an effect on those around you. Yeah. Whether you choose to recognize it or not. And that is some of the work that we're talking about too. Yeah. There are people, you're, I don't know where you work. Are you the youngest guy still on?
2: Not even close.
0: <laughs> so, not even close. So, some of what you have to share and some of the encouragement you have to offer may be the kindest thing that some of the staff hears all month.
2: I hadn't looked at it like that.
0: Well, you don't know their home life situations. Exactly. That's very true. And some of these, some of these, kids are living in ways that you and me couldn't deal with. Right, And, um, and so, you know, having somebody who is older kind of saying, no, "Oh, this is, so I'm really, really glad you're here. I'm glad you think about it this way. I'm glad you approach it differently. Makes it kind of wild and exciting and kind of cool or <laughs> whatever it is, you know? Yeah. And, you know, it can, it can have a, a, uh, a rippling out effect that's really good in the world. You know, especially with, you know, people feeling alone all the time.
3: Yeah.
2: And this past year has just amplified that.
0: Feeling isolated. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a, there's a point sometimes to even the work that we're not really certain we're a good fit for. Yeah. That's true. When I came to Books for Africa, I wasn't certain I was a good fit for it. Why? It was all in the white, suburban, male, you
3: know, yeah. <laughs>
0: among other things, right, <laughs> who thought of Africa as a single location, a single entity, yeah. you know, no, I knew that there were countries there, but still, like, you know, still, like, contextually, we think of, you know, so many Americans, I was just like, I'm thinking about Africa as, like, one, like, kind of landmass.
2: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, uh,
0: and it's 55 sovereign countries replete with their own tribal systems and their own languages and their own cultures. So are, are there similarities between some of them? Yeah, but it's not identical
2: right. by any stretch. Exactly. Exactly. No, you know, no more than in, in our own country, you know, things in exactly. Florida right. aren't the same as things in Colorado. Right. By any stretch of the imagination. Right. Books for Africa. What do you do there? What, what does that do? How does that work?
0: Well, we were started in 88 when our founder, who was uh, retired from publishing himself, traveled to Uganda. And when he got to Uganda, he couldn't find books anywhere. What little that was left behind was falling apart from the 20s and 30s from the British Council. Oh, wow. When Idi Amin declared the presidential win in 1971, one of the first things that he did was had his henchmen rake all the books out of the schools and libraries and set fire to them. Wow. And then the other thing he did is he gave anybody born of either Asian or Indian descent 90 days to pack up their family and to get out of Uganda. Wow. So, in those two actions, he created a society that values two things, the almighty shilling and the almighty bullet. Yeah. And... If you weren't born with either a military legacy family or you weren't born with like serious, serious money in Uganda, the door to your education was closed. Oh. And, um, and so the first books that Tom, our founder, said about sending was in 1988. And the kids were so excited to receive their first books in Jinja, Uganda. They were picking them up by the pages, having never seen humans hold a book before.
2: Wow. Oh, my gosh.
0: Now, conversely, America doesn't struggle for books. America struggles to value books. For sure. America will garbage 322 million books this year. We are sending a hundredth of what gets garbaged in America on an annual basis. Wow. When people ask me what I'm doing there at Books for Africa, I just, I say, like me, You got a birthday twin in all 55 African countries. I don't care what God you subscribe to. That's a fact. It's statistics 101. Yep. Whose life and years looks entirely different than yours and mine does. Is it possible that even one book in his or her hands could make a valid difference?
3: Absolutely. Well, let's just start there.
0: And so it becomes empowerment, because you know it doesn't matter what anybody's like into what they're what they're you know crazy about or hip to or what they enjoy. it's really of little consequence long as the kids love it, yeah, you know the the coursework for pediatric nursing is <laughs> tough, no matter what yeah. right yeah you had your daughter studying a uh, Anatomy and physiology? Yes. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's uh, one semester of trying to memorize every system, (laughs) every item on the human body. Yeah. And then the next semester of trying to apply all of it. So it's tough coursework, but it's, it's, so no matter what, you can't just kind of, it's never going to be able to be easily handed over. Right. But, giving kids the tools that they need to succeed, that's worth doing. Absolutely. You know, and it doesn't matter what it is. It could be a guitar, you know, okay. guitar playing. You know, I um, i read an interview with King Sonny a day in probably 1983, 85. Because you know, I had one guitar player magazine with Angus Young on the cover, and I read everything in it.
3: You're right,
0: everything <laughs> in it, all the articles and stuff like that. But I didn't hear his music for another oh, thirty-eight years. Oh wow! No. Yeah, you know, I heard his influence in the Talking Heads and other things that were kind of you know and stuff like that. Yeah, but in general, I didn't really hear him until years and years later. But I think that music and, and human interests are so wide and varied and long-reaching that they can work the world over. And so when people ask me, would you send a book about Jimi Hendrix to a kid in Nigeria? I said, absolutely, I would. Because if there was one of me growing up in Tennessee, there's, and there's 200 million Nigerians in 2021, someone there is going crazy for guitar. Oh, yeah. I have to believe that.
2: Well, James, I, like I said, I have kept you for so long. How can people follow the music? How can they uh, learn more about Books for Africa? and Keep it Yeah keep So up with you? Um,
0: Books for Africa is its own entity, and that is um, it's org. and then James Hall is, is his own entity. <laughs> pretty much down to James Hall's pretty much down to one person now. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, I am, actually do have a Jameshall.com and that has a a lot of music at it and someone recently ordered a bunch so i occasionally get the ping when somebody orders a bunch of the music off so that's cool and i'm um, vying to get everything i've got pressed and released on vinyl oh. why because i like looking at the artwork
2: oh yes um
0: i have a great appreciation for the vinyl experience I don't have a return table right now. Everything I've got is pretty much digitized or digital or pixelated at this point. Yeah. However, I have bought records that I only listen to digitally, but I like it because I have the artwork. Yes. The, the album is the genuine article.
2: It is. I. That's the only problem I have. I don't mind digital downloads, but I don't feel like I own it and I can't, I'm not going to stare at my computer and look at a JPEG while I'm listening to it.
0: No, it's not the same thing.
2: Nope. And uh,
0: but yeah, somebody did put out in uh, Britain. And it's hard to find, but you can find the occasional "My Low Sex and Spirit" with the lizard and stuff on it.
2: That so, yeah, vinyl. I gotta I gotta try to find that because I've I thought that artwork was amazing. I've got like I said, I got the the Damon one. My friend's not yeah. giving up his. So yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. So that's out there, but none of the pleasure club stuff is on vinyl. And uh, so, you know, we have our work cut out for us. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how many records I've done yet, but I've done a few. And I still feel good. I still feel all right. You know, good little to tell about it. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, well, Mark, I appreciate the time with you tonight. Well, really thank do. you
2: so much. I appreciate it as well. It's, it's been a wonderful conversation and it, it's, yeah, like I said, very timely for a lot of what we talked about. So thank you.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. Just the other day, he closed all the curtains. He took out a game. He set the blood and show.
1: Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to long shots off-track betting. Go to betfredsports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. At The Home Depot, we're dedicated to helping you build the skills that get your home projects done right.